Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts. See the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Mary Houghton and Ron Grzynski. Mary was president of Shorebank Corporation, the largest community development bank in the U.S. until it closed in 2010. She is currently a director of banks in British Columbia and India, as well as two U.S. nonprofit community development financial institutions. Ron was chairman and CEO of Shorebank Corporation and today is a director of Enterprise Community Partners, the Corporation for Economic Development, and EcoTrust. He has received numerous honors, including the John Gardner Leadership Award. Both Mary and Ron were named two of America's best leaders in 2007 by U.S. News and World Report. Despite widespread media coverage of bank closures and consolidations over the past several years, there are still more than 7,000 banks and 7,000 credit unions in the United States. Just under 100 of those banks are certified by the U.S. Treasury as community development banks, and another 500 nonprofit community loan funds finance housing rehab, small businesses, and nonprofit facilities. Mary and Ron are here tonight to discuss the role that Shorebank played as the first and largest community development bank and the increasing importance of community development financial institutions as long-term partners in community and economic development. Please join me in welcoming Mary Houghton and Ron Krasinski. I was speculating as to whether anybody would show up this evening. I mean, it's just uh, such a gorgeous day, so thank you very much, and uh, we'll try to make it uh, with your time. Mary and I are going. We've, Mary and I have worked together for forty some years. I mean, she started when she was ten or something, twelve, right? Anyway, uh, it's been a long time. There were actually four of us who uh, uh, worked together at Shorebank uh, uh, for all of its existence. Uh, the other two men uh, are deceased, unfortunately. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about what the idea of Shorebank uh, was all about. Uh, try and do that fairly briefly, uh, and Mary's going to talk about some of the work that we're doing uh, together going forward uh, that pertains to banks and community development. Uh, and Nisha works uh, with us on that project, and uh, Nisha's going to move the slides along. There aren't that many of them, um, the, uh, and mine are very unprofessional. I just put them together this morning, uh, so perhaps to make it a little bit easier to follow the conversation. So, um, to start... Uh, uh, Shorebank, uh, the idea behind Shorebank, there were the four of us that I mentioned uh, all started working together in the 1960s, and we started uh, at a different bank, the Hyde Park Bank uh, in the Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, where we created the first minority small business loan program uh, in Illinois. Uh, some of you maybe, maybe, I don't uh, probably not, are old enough to remember uh, the 1960s uh, and what was happening uh, in the cities at that time. Uh, discrimination, racial discrimination was rampant, uh, and uh, their um, uh, credit for um, uh, minorities to buy homes, start businesses, that sort of thing was uh, truly non-existent. The, uh, through the FHA, the U.S. government officially redlined neighborhoods, uh, and they redlined neighborhoods that uh, were primarily uh, minority-oriented or had uh, majority-minority populations. Uh, so it was in 1967 uh, that we first started making loans to minority-owned businesses. Uh, and then early in 1968 actually created a separate division within the bank. It was the first time in Illinois and the second time in the country uh, where a bank had uh, explicitly uh, created a specific activity to finance uh, minority activities, in this case citywide in Chicago. The four of us who worked together really liked each other. uh, Milton had been the head of the Chicago chapter of CORE, the Congress for Racial Equality, uh, had a very strong and had the uh, longest view of race relations of anybody I have ever known. Uh, Jim Fletcher uh, uh, grew up in Ida B. Wells, public housing. Uh, Mary and I have been involved in various ways with community organizing work. And so as we did our work at that bank uh, doing minority loans, we began to also think about the work that we had done in community-based organizations 
and thought about ways of whether it might be possible uh, to bring together the work that we did in our day jobs, ties and suits and all that kind of stuff, uh, as bankers uh, with the work that we did as volunteers uh, trying to help communities uh, put together uh, better housing, uh, safety programs, uh, in some cases uh, health care uh, programs, but the kinds of things that communities uh, need. And it was against that background that um, uh, I left the Hyde Park Bank in 1969 and went to work on trying to create the organizational structure that might enable us to do that. So um, there it is. Uh, so the idea behind Shore Bank, okay, the idea as a concept, okay, was that we wanted to take um, sort of three major ideas, okay, that at, up to that time, work that happened in communities was by and large done by community-based organizations and was often funded by either through government contracts, these were the days of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, uh, in which uh, programs often were defined in Washington and sent down uh, to the communities. And what we we're interested in was trying to create a development organization that would be um, located in the neighborhood in which decisions were made in the neighborhood and that there were enough resources in the neighborhood to carry out those decisions without being dependent on government money and foundation money. So that was the first idea, to keep my notes straight here, uh, to create a, an organization that could be self-sustaining, okay, without... without um, um, being dependent on others. The second uh, uh, criteria was that we wanted to do something that was comprehensive so that there were often organizations or activities that would go on in a community. In one community there might be housing, in another community there might be uh, public safety, in another community uh, there might be an effort to improve schools. And it seemed to us that if one was going to really try to renew communities there should be some effort to bring all those things together under one uh, umbrella. And lastly, and perhaps what uh, at least I think of as being uh, the most important um, uh, ingredient for community development is to create a sense of community self-confidence. Uh, that it always seemed to us as communities would deteriorate uh, because people lost confidence in what was going to happen to the community. Uh, people would imagine uh, that bankers, as an example, knew what was really going on in a community. Uh, and if bankers began to disinvest in a community, people would say, well, we ought to disinvest too because this community is going down. Okay? Uh, on the other hand, it seemed as though one could do various things to create a sense of community self-confidence, that, that a neighborhood not, is not going to go down. We had various models. I mean, there were, uh, we were able to observe... Uh, what had gone on in the Hyde Park community, which we had nothing to do with, uh, with the University of Chicago. We knew at a distance uh, other places uh, where large institutions uh, had taken uh, initiatives. Uh, we were aware, at least theoretically, of, of work that was, had been done in Boston with the Boston Housing Development um, Agency, uh, in which they very consciously uh, put resources into a part, into a defined community uh, until the market uh, mechanisms would take over, and then they would begin to take uh, resources out of that first neighborhood and put them into another neighborhood to try to repeat the process. So it was a very conscious sense of uh, self-confidence. The um, And a big part of the self-confidence was trying to uh, figure out ways to release local energies. Uh, it has always, again, seemed that... Um, uh, the, the key to development everywhere, uh, whether it was in the South Shore neighborhood on the south side of Chicago uh, or in rural, in a small town in rural Arkansas or in developing countries like Bangladesh uh, where Mary and I worked, uh, that the key to, was everywhere was trying to create a sense in which people uh, really believed that things were going to get better rather than getting worse. And that was a very conscious part of what we were about. So in order to make those things happen, uh, to, in order to be self-sustaining, comprehensive, uh, and to um, uh, 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 have self-confidence, we figured that what we had to do was to create a privately capitalized business. Okay, uh, We weren't sure exactly what it was going to be initially, but it had to have private capital, the same way that 
uh, McDonald's or Boeing or IBM uh, or any other corporation or a major university has capital, okay, uh, that you have a capital base in which you can uh, sustain losses, uh, in which you can have uh, freedom to operate, etc. So it's essentially it was a, uh, a business uh, model. Um, we also uh, felt as though uh, if we operated as a bank, as a, if a bank was a core of what we were doing, that we could do what every bank does, and that is that we could raise deposits, raise FDIC-insured deposits, and convert them into development credit. Okay, So what banks normally do, at least in the old days, okay, uh, is they would do just that. Okay, They would uh, gather up deposits uh, and generally reinvest them in their own communities. Uh, that's what we thought we would do, but because we had experience at the Hyde Park Bank of reaching out beyond our normal uh, community, and bringing deposits in that we could convert to uh, loans to minority-owned businesses throughout the Chicago uh, metropolitan area. That became an important part of how we were going to uh, be a self-sustaining business organization. In other words, rather than going to a big bank to give us uh, a loan that we could reinvest or going to a foundation or going to the government, we would do what every other bank does, except that we would do it for the benefit of the community. And lastly, uh, in terms of that sequence, um, banks are able to generate profits, uh, uh, generate earnings. Uh, and we thought that we might not be as profitable as other uh, banks might be because we were going to be focused primarily on development and we were going to be focused primarily on people with less wealth, uh, even though that wasn't talked about in those days as much as it is these days, uh, but less wealth and less income. So we figured we could be profitable and self-sustaining but not as profitable as everybody else. And as part of that, we decided that we had to try to raise capital from shareholders and investors who were as committed to the process as we were, I mean, whose primary purpose in investing equity capital uh, was to support this idea of development. So much of our capital came initially from charitable foundations uh, and national church bodies, uh, some wealthy individuals, but it all came not as gifts, okay? It came as equity capital, as shares in Shorebank Corporation. So that was a, a main part of how we were uh, intending to be self-sustaining. The notion of, of uh, being comp comprehensive was an issue that we wrestled with um, because what we, we had this idea, okay, that we had to be able to do these variety of things. We had to be able to extend development credit to other people in the community and also as a means to uh, help release the energies of local residents uh, to build self-confidence. Uh, but we didn't know what the organization was going to look like. And when we, after I left the Hyde Park Bank and was doing the research, uh, one of the coincidental things that happened was that the Congress passed the 19, what are technically the 1970 amendments to the Bank Holding Company Act. Uh, and a year later, uh, under, under the legislation, the Federal Reserve Board had to define permissible activities for bank holding companies. And when they did that, they said that bank holding companies, all bank holding companies in this country, uh, and I might add that the overwhelming majority then and now of banking resources in this country are organized as bank holding companies, all of which are regulated by the Federal Reserve Board. Um, that uh, the Fed said that bank holding companies could invest, could only invest in businesses that are closely related to the business of banking. Okay? Uh, the initial, initially they had a list of six businesses that were closely related to the business of banking. So the bank holding companies could invest in finance companies, they could invest in uh, IT uh, activities, they could invest in uh, different kinds of uh, credit activities. The sixth one on that list, and this applied to all bank holding companies, uh, was that bank holding companies could invest in community development corporations if the primary purpose was uh, development for the benefit of low and moderate income people. And it was when we saw that, okay, uh, that we said, well, why couldn't we create a bank holding company uh, that was a development bank, okay, that was a community development bank. And this is, this again, is still ancient history. We're talking about 1971, 1972, when all this went on. And it was about a year later uh, when the Federal Reserve Board interpreted its own regulations and observed that bank holding companies possess a unique, that's their word, unique combination of managerial and financial resources with which to deal with a number of the nation's social ills. 
Um, I know the lines well because I raised a lot of capital uh, repeating that. Um, so we felt like we were on pretty good grounds, okay, that, there was, that we had a structure, okay. The structure would be a bank holding company uh, and that that bank holding company would operate primarily as a development organization. But like bank holding companies then and now, uh, what uh, most bank holding companies have subsidiaries that are conventional business subsidiaries. So they have finance companies, they have IT companies, they have credit card companies, et cetera. And we said we're going to create a bank holding company, but its subsidiaries are going to be organizations or business activities that are going to advance the development program. So under the under that bank holding company that we initially envisioned and eventually implemented, uh, there was first of all a bank, okay, and the bank would um, its primary purpose was to extend development credit, okay, uh, and that credit would uh, go to create businesses, uh, help people uh, finance uh, home purchases, help people to um, uh, purchase and rehabilitate uh, housing, uh, to do the various kinds of things that communities uh, need. Uh, we also said that there would be a real estate development company, so that while our major activity might be to make loans to other individual um, building owners, okay, uh, we also said that there were some times in order to uh, catalyze a uh, development activity, there had to be large-scale kinds of uh, development projects uh, so that uh, we were instrumental in turning uh, uh, South Shore around in creating two, um, helping to uh, create and invest in two very large projects. The first one was 304 rental housing units in 11 buildings. The next one was um, uh, 400, forgetting my numbers, um, Parkside, it's about 400 units, uh, in 24 buildings in a six-square-block area uh, that we managed to buy in the marketplace without anybody knowing what we were doing, and then raised enough money in order to do a major rehabilitation project. Those became major catalytic projects, okay, uh, that made it safe for uh, the bank to make loans to others' uh, projects that were not subsidized and were of much smaller scale. It also made it safer for the people who were borrowing from the bank to have a stable investment because it was, there was more confidence that the community would continue to develop. That was the purpose of the real estate development company. Uh, subsequently, we did one large, uh, relatively large, on a neighborhood level, uh, shopping center uh, at the corner of 71st and Jeffrey. is about 110,000 uh, square feet. Uh, anchored by a Dominic's uh, uh, grocery store. It was the first time that Dominic's came into a black neighborhood uh, in Chicago. Uh, but it was a tool that we had uh, that would supplement the other larger volume uh, activity of the bank. I always thought that what the, what the bank uh, was able to finance was a, a sort of a bottom-up, in other words, uh, individual entrepreneurs, a bottom-up, uh, small scale, okay, people doing one or two buildings, but large volume, okay, so that over, uh, over a period of years, we managed to uh, buy and rehabilitate, not buy, but finance and rehabilitate about 55,000 rental units in the city of Chicago without subsidy, okay. Most people would say it's impossible, okay. Uh, it was uh, not impossible, uh, and it was a a uh, very strong uh, performance record on the part of the borrowers. Our total losses were about 18 basis points, 18 one-hundredths of 1% on average over about a 30-some-year uh, period. Um, so that was the, the purpose of the uh, real estate company, both to create better housing, but primarily to be a catalyst, okay, to, uh, to induce others uh, to invest capital, to take risks, and to rehabilitate. The next part of the structure, of the organization structure, was a, uh, I, uh, the way we had originally structured it was that it would be an equity investment company. It was probably that part of the structure that was least successful in its original form uh, for a variety of reasons, including uh, federal regulations that made it difficult to operate. But over the years, as Shorebank expanded into other communities in Cleveland, Detroit, on the West Coast, uh, and in Marquette, Michigan, and the Upper Peninsula, that form of uh, creating subordinated debt uh, and equity uh, ended up uh, taking place in other uh, uh, affiliates that were not-for-profit organizations, but not quite in the way that we had originally envisioned. 
The last part of the original structure, which uh, worked well for about the first 10 years, uh, was to create a not-for-profit organization that would do some of the things that were the softer side of development, so things like remedial education, job training, uh, et cetera. Uh, and we did that, um, uh, but we, for that activity, we had to raise money from other sources, either government or foundations. And over time, we found that we were no more effective at doing that. That could have been our own uh, uh, management or uh, uh, less than uh, capable management. So that was the sort of structure that we uh, put together. Um, the, um, which slide are we on up here? Um, uh, okay. Uh, so I've um, probably pretty much covered all that. Uh, so we had the bank, we had the real estate company, we had the equity fund, we had the not-for-profit. So um, all that um, 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 worked together quite well. We, um, uh, Shore Bank worked only in the South Shore neighborhood for the first 10 years. What, uh, what we ended up doing was buying a, uh, a bank, uh, the South Shore National Bank, uh, which had been in the neighborhood since 1939. Uh, when uh, in, 19, in the 1960 census, the South Shore neighborhood was 100% white. It was a community of about 80,000 people. In the 1970 census, it was 70% black. It was fairly uh, rapid uh, racial change. Uh, and by 1972, uh, the bank uh, announced uh, publicly uh, that it was intending to close its office in the South Shore neighborhood and move, uh, frankly, right over here uh, to what, I uh, forget what they call it now, but it uh, was the Standard Oil Building or whatever, <laughs> the Edward Durrell, what is it? Aon Building, Edward Durrell Stone uh, Building. Um, and uh, we had, in the meantime, been doing uh, research uh, uh, trying to identify neighborhoods where deterioration had begun but where the community had not bottomed out uh, having lived on the south side, we were very familiar with neighborhoods on both sides of Hyde Park, uh, both Kenwood, uh, Oakland, and Woodlawn, which had gone through all the stages of disinvestment up to abandonment. Uh, the various experts uh, said that the same thing had to happen in South Shore because it had such a high concentration of older multifamily walk-up buildings, the same kind of housing stock that existed in the other parts of the city that had gone all the way to uh, demolition. Uh, but because we were working with, we had a small amount of grant money, uh, and because we were working with grant money, we could not act as business people trying to buy a bank, okay? What we could do is uh, do research, and we had identified about five neighborhoods uh, that had banks in them. It was sort of like lining up three cherries or something on a slot machine because there had to be a community that looked good. There had to be a bank uh, in that community that was the right size, uh, sort of like Goldilocks, neither too big nor too small. Uh, and the bank had to be available for sale. Uh, and you had to line up all three of them. Uh, and South Shore was a neighborhood that, um, uh, well, we never knew if which banks were for sale. We knew, where, we knew the community and we knew the size of the bank. Um, and then the South Shore Bank announced that it was going to move. And if you go back to that period in this country's history, uh, there had not ever before been a case in which when a bank went to the regulators and asked for permission to close its office in a neighborhood that changed racially, that permission had always been granted, okay, uh, that the regulators, uh, the bank would just say that uh, the bank uh, was not viable, it was not economically viable in that community. And so uh, it was publicly announced in the uh, paper that the South Shore National Bank was going to be sold. It was going to close its office in the South Shore neighborhood, and it was going to relocate uh, here in the Aon building. Um, and um, so people in um, uh, the South Shore community um, uh, were not smart enough to uh, know that uh, that had never happened, that they could fight that and, and win. Uh, so they went ahead and fought it. And after two public hearings, they won. Uh, and that happened in December of 1972. Uh, it took us a while, a lot of stories behind that. But in August of 1973, uh, we managed to buy uh, the South Shore National Bank. Uh, and we uh, got control of $40 million of assets, 
with a $800,000 of equity capital and a two and a quarter million dollar loan, which was standard for the way that banks were bought and sold in those days in terms of how much leverage one could build into the structure. And that was how uh, Shore Bank began uh, on the afternoon of August 23, 1973. Um, for the first 10 years, all we did was uh, pay attention to South Shore. Uh, we sort of hardly ever lifted our nose. What we knew we had to do was to uh, create a sense of community self-confidence because everybody, uh, everybody knew that everybody was disinvesting. Everybody knew that the adjacent neighborhood of Woodlawn had gone all the way to abandonment. Uh, it was a foregone conclusion that the same thing was going to happen to South Shore. Uh, and so we started investing. The only kind of single-family mortgages that people could get in those days uh, were FHA or VA insured. It was a way in which the, um, uh, the um, um, financial structure in this country sent messages uh, to, uh, to people, to uh, minorities buying in that neighborhood, that they weren't uh, credit worthy, uh, that uh, only a government insured loan was the only way they were going to get a, uh, be able to buy a house. The very first thing we started doing was to do uh, non-FHA, non-VA mortgage loans. Um, I don't think we ever lost a dime on any of them. Uh, and then after about two or three years, the market began to observe that and other lenders began to lend. And we then focused our attention on the biggest problem uh, that existed in the neighborhood, which was the multifamily buildings that were continuing to uh, deteriorate and nobody was investing in them. We also did a lot of things in terms of community self-confidence uh, so that uh, when we built something as simple as a parking lot for our customers, we landscaped it heavily, okay? Um, um, ben Weiss, uh, Harry Weiss and Associates, uh, um, did the planning for planting the trees and all the, the shrubbery and stuff to make it an attractive parking lot, okay? Uh, we got, I think it's the same sculptor who has the um, big stainless steel piece uh, in front of the uh, um, um, Intelligentsia coffee shop on um, on Randolph. I think he's the one who did a big sculpture uh, that we had him do when he was earlier in his career and put it right in front of the bank uh, as a way to say that this bank uh, is not just going to be an ordinary doing business uh, the normal way. We had no money, uh, but we spent money on fixing up the front of the building, landscaping it, putting in trees, etc. Uh, we had to build a new drive-in facility. It was the same thing. Uh, we did good, uh, good planning. Uh, we had... Uh, um, in that case, Ben Weiss himself uh, did the work on, uh, um, with traffic planners, uh, getting a traffic flow uh, that would work so that uh, that part of the neighborhood, which had the most expensive houses and could be the most vocal um, if they were getting a drive-in facility in their backyard, uh, ended up uh, being supportive because we were able to uh, create traffic flows that wouldn't go into the neighborhood and we landscaped it to hell and gone. Okay, trees and everything and plantings uh, and even a greenhouse, but the greenhouse failed because Ben didn't know how to control uh, whatever it was, heat or moisture or something. But anyway, it was still there. Um, and back in, nine, that was probably 1975, 76, uh, and Ben even put in lighting under which you could barely see. I mean, he was more energy conscious than um, uh, before most people uh, were. Anyway, those are all war stories. Uh, but we did a lot of things uh, in order to create a sense of community self-confidence. I mean, it was a very conscious part of what we were doing. Uh, after 10 years, uh, the uh, uh, South Shore was uh, clearly on the upswing. Uh, the bank was uh, growing. The bank was profitable in a variety of ways. Uh, and starting in about 1983, we consciously started to look at another neighborhood in which to expand. When we first went to South Shore, uh, everybody uh, said, well, you know, uh, there's no way it's going to work. Uh, you know, these are just, uh, we were young then, uh, young, naive uh, fools. Uh, and, you know, they'll learn. Uh, and uh, 10 years later, uh, uh, the, uh, pro some of the same people were saying, well, you know, Anybody could have done that. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a well-located neighborhood. It's got golf courses. It's got a former country club, which we help, we help the community to preserve. Uh, you know, it's close to downtown Chicago, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so we ended up going to the Austin neighborhood on the far west side, uh, far enough away uh, to demonstrate that it could happen uh, elsewhere. Um, 
After that, a number of things happened. Uh, we got uh, involved uh, in Arkansas. <coughs> Governor Bill Clinton uh, invited us to come to Arkansas and do a rural version of Shorebank. Uh, that uh, led, uh, when he became president, to the creation of the CDFI legislation, Community Development Financial Institutions. It's a federal program uh, that still exists. Uh, we got a, Mary got a phone call one morning uh, from the Ford Foundation and asked whether we might be willing to uh, go and make uh, one trip uh, to Bangladesh. Uh, there was some crazy economist uh, there who thought that he could make small loans uh, to women in villages, uh, but that he was trained as an economist, um, uh, not as a banker. And he had asked uh, Adrian Germain, the Ford Foundation rep in Bangladesh, whether she could find him either an Indian or an American banker. Mary, fortunately, has a degree in uh, international something, uh, and because uh, I had to ask her where Bangladesh is. Uh, anyway, we, uh, we spent 10 days with Muhammad Yunus, uh, and that one trip became 18 trips over the next 10 years, in which we ended up uh, helping them uh, raise uh, about $200 million in capital uh, during the first 10 years of the Grameen Bank. Uh, but that was the beginning of an international uh, agenda for Shorebank that was no part of our original plan. We ended up working with BRAC, uh, and our colleagues still work with BRAC, which today is the world's largest non-government development organization that not only extends credit, but is very involved in uh, education, uh, dairy production, um, um, uh, chicken production, has a four-year college, uh, at, uh, and works in a number of countries other than Bangladesh, uh, and was just about two months ago uh, named as the world's leading uh, non-government organization uh, doing this kind of development uh, work. Um, but that then took us uh, in the early 90s, uh, in, uh, specifically in uh, 1990, uh, to start working in Eastern Europe, uh, first in Poland with the Polish American Enterprise Fund. Uh, and we ended up uh, uh, working with, let's, let me get to the last uh, one, whatever, there we are. Um, so we ended up uh, over the years uh, working, I actually think the number is more than 31 countries, um, but uh, uh, we ended up uh, working about half of the uh, countries that were part of the former Soviet Union uh, in the early 90s, and actually through most of that decade and continues uh, now, uh, helping them to install uh, small business loan programs uh, and to understand uh, Western approaches to extending credit. And when we extended credit, it's much more uh, um, cash flow lending, uh, much more understanding of uh, value uh, in the cash flow and how a business is, uh, is being managed. Um, we ended up going to uh, Cleveland and Detroit. Uh, we created the nation's first environmental development bank on the West Coast. Uh, this is the first one in the country. It was located on the West Coast, uh, headquartered in a little town of Owaco, Washington, which is right at the mouth of the uh, Columbia River. Uh, and that uh, grew very, very nicely. Uh, and in almost all of these places, we also created not-for-profit affiliates uh, that were doing um, uh, higher-risk uh, small business uh, lending, uh, and all of those uh, continue to exist. Shorebank as an organization um, grew from that original $40 million to about $2.5 billion in total assets. Uh, after the, the, bank, it's, the bank became profitable in its second year and then remained profitable with the exception of one year, the holding company took longer because we had a lot of debt uh, in the holding company. That two and a quarter million dollars that we borrowed uh, uh, had an interest rate attached to it, uh, among other things. And then we also had created other uh, subsidiaries and affiliates. And then later we put in a lot of earnings uh, toward funding a lot of the expansion stuff that we did. Uh, so that, as an example, when we went to Arkansas and helped to uh, start and then run that bank holding company, we never had a, con a contract. It was a handshake. I mean, we went to Poland on a handshake. Uh, and we didn't lose a lot of money, but we lost enough money. Uh, and that brought down the holding company's earnings so that uh, over a long period of time, they averaged somewhere about 50% of peers. We ended up in four locations. Uh, we, I mentioned the Environmental Bank. Uh, there were a couple of things that um, uh, Shorebank was uh, responsible for in terms of public policy. Um, I had uh, the honor to be the only banker in the country who testified in favor of uh, CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Uh, it's a much longer story about how that uh, got started, uh, but some people who keep track of that stuff claim that it, 
is probably the piece of legislation that has resulted in more money going into uh, urban communities than any other single piece of legislation. I have no idea what the numbers are, um, but there are a lot of people who keep track of that. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we, um, uh, in Arkansas, we worked uh, with Bill Clinton uh, and uh, had a lot of conversations with him as governor in which he was trying to learn how one might use private resources to create essentially um, uh, development uh, activities, and it was then his idea uh, to uh, introduce the CDFI legislation. Uh, the New Marcus tax credit legislation uh, also came out of that same kind of experience. Again, his ideas, but with roots in some of the things that we were able to, uh, to do in Arkansas. Um, and I think the last thing from a public policy point of view is that uh, while, as, and Mary will get into this in just a second, I mean, we feel that uh, there's so much that uh, banks could do that they are not doing, and that, if anything, the situation has become worse rather than better, okay? But among people who pay attention to this uh, from a public policy point of view, the idea of be- using uh, uh, private banks, whether it's Grameen or Brack or Shore Bank or a number of the other environmental banks that have been uh, created, uh, Mary might tell you about the... Global Alliance for Banking on Values, on which she's on the uh, steering committee. Uh, but increasingly, there is a legitimacy. Uh, it's very small. It doesn't have a lot of impact yet. Um, uh, we're going to still try to change that, the amount of impact. Uh, but it is a legitimate idea, uh, which it was not at the time that we started. So uh, Shorebank, uh, uh, Shorebank had a great uh, run for 38 years. Uh, and we got caught in the, uh, uh, in the, in the mortgage crisis. South Shore, uh, Shore Bank was closed uh, by the regulators on uh, August 20th of uh, 2010. Uh, there have been a couple of case studies written, including uh, Sheila Baer, who was the head of the FDIC uh, at the time, uh, came out with a book last fall called Bull by the Horns, and she devoted six pages to Shore Bank and why Shore Bank should not have been closed uh, and says it was all political, which we know. Um, uh, we had raised $148 million, $148 million of private capital. Uh, the FDIC went at $125. Uh, but you have to read her book uh, for the details. Or, uh, or go online and find the Stanford Social Innovation Review from August uh, 2011 about all the stuff that went on. Um, but... Um, um, but all the companies, there were about 11 or 12 companies that were part of Shorebank, and with one exception, the not-for-profit in Cleveland, which has been merged into another organization, they all continue today. Uh, uh, the bank, the Shorebank uh, in Chicago is now called Urban Partnership Bank. We have nothing to do with it. And then we sold the Pacific Bank uh, to a foundation uh, that has started a bank in Oakland uh, and now uh, serves uh, most of the West Coast and is getting some momentum going uh, in terms of doing development. So that was much longer than I intended, uh, obviously. Uh, so why don't I stop, uh, and uh, if that's okay, and then I hope we'll have enough time for questions. I really didn't intend to go that long. So let me sit down. So we're not going to do the slides, and I'm going to just try to cause us to think about what's happening today. Uh, because if anything, the condition in neighborhoods is worse today than it was in 1970 when we could see the you know the effects of of uh, redlining and racial discrimination so i think that the most important thing that i could do in the 30 seconds that i have left is remind you all that banks are given charters because their function in our society is to invest in the real economy. That's why they exist. That's why they get deposit insurance to play that role. And and that is their fundamental role. And we have now watched many, many years of banks withdrawing from that role. But as you pointed out, there are still 7,000 of them in this country, and there are 7,000 credit unions. 450 of them are located in low-income census tract areas, uh, and they do just about as well as other banks in terms, they don't lose money, they just do about the same. And now there are 
So there's the beginnings of an alternative banking movement, uh, and it is worth supporting and also worth reminding your local banker that they do have a choice, um, that you know they could fulfill their charter function or they could not. Uh, as Ron said, there are 85 banks that have gone to the trouble of getting certified by the U.S. Treasury Department as community development banks. They do that because they can get a hold of uh, some uh, uh, capital and technical assistance money. Um, they're mainly small. There's none that are just shooting rockets. Maybe the most impressive of them are a bank in Harlem called Carver and a bank up in Minneapolis called the Sunrise Bank Group. And there are about a half a dozen green banks that have just shot up in the last few years, and maybe that will continue. Uh, and then there's this network called the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. And they have, they were founded by Shorebank, a Dutch bank called Triodos Bank, and BRAC Bank uh, in Bangladesh. And their mantra is essentially, um, it's more important for us to create non-financial returns than financial returns. We can create social returns and environmental returns for our customers. Of course, we're going to try to make a profit so we can be self-sustaining, but it's more important that we play this larger role in society than just thinking about the uh, investors who want a financial return. And they're saying that with courage and confidence. They've produced a study that shows that the banks in their network also are outperforming not only other community banks, but also the big banks. And of course, their loan to deposit ratios are much, much higher than the large banks because they actually do believe that their charter purpose is to invest in the real economy. Um, and so if you were, what, what Ron and I and Nisha are trying to do is uh, see, see if we can create something we're calling the Campaign for Better Banks. Not the best banks, but better banks. <laughs> can we find another 20 or 30 banks that really understand that to think long-term, to be transparent, to stand up and lead investment in one's local market, to care about financial inclusion and environmental investment, that that's the wave of the future and that they're going there, even if all those other banks are going there. Um, and so we have a half a dozen ideas of how we're going to do that, and it'll take us another year before we actually are funded to operate, I think. Um, but I think from the perspective of the profession that you're in, you know, there's have to be bridges in between the bankers and the other people who care about local communities, and the bankers make it very hard to have a real conversation. Uh, but that's the you know that's what we all need to learn how to do because you know that we had a lot of fun at Surebank. That was a great kind of banking, and there are people all around the world who are working for these development banks. They wouldn't be caught dead in a conventional bank. So it's a better career. <laughs> you could attract better people. So with that, well, let's have questions, comments, discussion. A very close friend of mine has grown up in Woodlawn his entire life, and he would definitely concur with what you've been saying, that times are really tough right now for some of these neighborhoods. And he actually went to his local alderman to talk to him about the demolitions that are occurring in the neighborhood. Some of these buildings were recently renovated, too, five, ten years ago before the crash. And now they've been empty and they're just coming down because the banks that are holding on to these things don't want to maintain the asset. And they just view it as a loss on their balance sheet. And um, his alderman basically told him, well, tearing down buildings is a good thing because it gives neighbors yards because they have the ability to buy the adjacent lot. So essentially, there's a very nonchalant attitude with some members of the city council. And this can't be just Woodlawn, too. So what is what would you recommend as the best way to change that type of attitude? And how do you feel that the city could engage some of these community development corporations and give them a little bit more leverage to stop some of these demolitions from coming and 
protect these wonderful old buildings that are really solid construction and provide a lot of affordable housing that's already in the marketplace? Well, um, I maybe don't want to say what I'm about to say, but I might as well say it. Uh, Rahm Emanuel should have thought of that when he was chief of staff and they closed Shorebank. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm, go ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, on a uh, on a uh, broader and more serious note, okay. Um, I don't know that I thought about all the things that might be done in terms of you know public policy uh, and how one could slow down uh, uh, the rate of a building closure. I mean that. If I th- when I think back to our first years in the South Shore neighborhood, I I really felt this before we started doing multifamily lending. I really felt like we were living with a a ticking time bomb. I mean, it was, an, it was a mental image that I had because um, what we knew is that in that neighborhood, um, then about 80,000 people, about three quarters of the uh, land area in South Shore is single family detached brick bungalows, well built, solid stuff. About three quarters of the population lived in multifamily walk-up buildings, okay, uh, and nobody was doing any financing, and the adjacent neighborhoods were just going down. And so the people who said that's what had to happen in South Shore uh, really, you know, had the courage of their convictions. Uh, we started by doing multifamily lending on a very, very cautious uh, basis. I mean, very, very small because uh, we knew. From a couple of other good Sames and Loans, if any of you have been around here long enough, Tom and Federal Sames and Loan, which was out on the southwest side, I knew the guy who was chairman, I mean, who was a, a very good, serious guy, and they had tried to do financing, but they never did it in a comprehensive way, and they didn't do it in a way to provide enough strength in the community. So they would do a building here and a building there and a building there. Uh, and uh, because there wasn't enough. Um, uh, volume going on, uh, they ended up uh, uh, losing. Um, uh, and so we approached it very, very cautiously and found that what exists in that neighborhood and in other neighborhoods as, as literally the decades went by is that there are a lot of people in communities who uh, they wouldn't think of themselves as being in the real estate development business because they couldn't get financing. If you would have gone into the South Shore neighborhood and done a survey, okay, the best possible survey you could of how many people were in the real estate development business in 1973, you would have come back with zero, okay. On the other hand, there were people who were handymen, okay, or there were people who would, uh, uh, might know the trowel trades, okay, or there would be non-union people who, you know, if you call them up and, you, you know, your neighbor or your friend told you who to call, you know, well, he does, you know, kind of good carpentry work or he can do some plastering work and stuff like that. It was those kinds of people uh, that we were able to end up financing. We would start them off in small buildings and we would, uh, we would we use the bank's power of the purse strings to force rehabilitation. We made a non-negotiable demand on our borrowers and that is you did not get a loan from us unless we reached agreement on some level of rehab going in. In the early years, that was could be as modest, not too often, could be as modest as a paint job, okay? We wanted stuff on the outside so other people in the community would see what was going on. Storm windows, mailboxes, okay? Little stuff that you know could be supported by the cash flow but would create this sense of self-confidence. So to go back to, um, uh, to your real question, okay, what, what could be done? Um, I would put an awful lot of attention to trying to see what a city could do. Uh, it ought to be done on a larger level, but your question was about the city. What a city could do about creating real incentives for banks, other banks, to get involved in doing that kind of lending in their communities. Okay, it's not. This is not rocket science. Okay, by any stretch of the imagination, it doesn't come close uh, to doing all the uh, uh, stuff that people. Uh, aren't quite enough of them going to jail for yet, uh, but, uh, you know, and uh, fixing LIBOR rates and all that kind of uh, stuff. Uh, although today's New York Times shows how many people have left uh, Jamie Dimon's bank. Uh, should cause one to think what's really going on here, right? Uh, anyway, uh, so it's not rocket science, but it does require uh, good old-fashioned banking, okay? You've got to be able to uh, as a lender, you've got to be able to look over the desk. You've got to be able to evaluate 
the character of the person. You've got to evaluate what his or her experience has been and what they intend to do. Uh, and a city uh, could, uh, could move its deposits uh, as an incentive to banks to do it. I don't know what it can do legislatively, okay, because the federal uh, bank regulators uh, keep as much power for themselves as they can. On the other hand, there are a lot of banks that are state-chartered. Okay, Shore Bank was a state-chartered FDIC-insured bank in which the holding company was regulated by the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, so there's room in there at a state level. Okay, um, I don't spend my time really thinking about all those kind of public policy things, uh, but they are not as helpless as, uh, uh, as people might imagine. So I have one further thought. Um, by chance, earlier today, we were told about at least uh, eight or nine organizations around the city of Chicago who are really concerned about your issue. Uh, so, you know, it might take uh, a big effort by all of them together to do much more than they're currently doing. But then the resource might be the Woodstock Institute, which is just going to celebrate its 40th anniversary for focusing only on the issue of urban reinvestment. So they've got very smart people there. This is the reason for existence. I was remembering that when a uh, long, long time ago, the biggest problem was that when a property was foreclosed on, uh, taxes had to be delinquent for four or five years before the property could be moved on. And all of the community development corporations in the city got together to fight uh, that regulation and to get it changed. So I think public pressure, which I, I, you know, I feel like we're living in a society which is completely apathetic. These things are happening, and it's like it's nobody even cares anymore. So it's going to take some enormous effort to get all the way to the other side. Woodstock will have a, um, a two-day symposium, and they'll cover a lot of these issues. Hi, thank you for the talk, actually. I'm from the Chicago Community Loan Fund, and we're a CDFI, and we actually share um, sweet space with Woodstock. But I was just wondering, um, so you mentioned, you talked about the community development financial institutions that are banks, there's venture capital funds, there's loan funds, there's, um, I'm forgetting the fourth one, credit unions. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, if you think that there is, they can borrow from each other more if there's one of them that has a more long-term uh, sustainability um, aspect about it. Because I feel like right now, increasingly, we've our investments have gone less from kind of individual investors, um, and more of our investments are from banks. And right now, business has been up because the credit market is so tight. We're able to assist people that are up against their credit limits. But um, over the long haul, um, I don't know what the CDFI industry, especially for loan funds, will look like. And if there should be more of a focus on CDFI banks or um, credit unions, or if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. As to to uh, speak to which uh, the, the comparison between those organizations? I guess that if you had to put your your uh, money behind the dog in the race, or I mean, they all fill different holes in the marketplace. I understand, but um, if there's pros and cons, or things that they can learn from each other, and what you predict the forecasts are. Can I answer this one? Yeah, if I could get my flip answer in first, uh, <laughs> the um, Willie Sutton was right. You rob banks because that's where the money is. But go ahead. <laughs> so um, if you look at all the small business lending that goes on in the United States today, um, the enormous bulk of it is done by banks. Nonprofit CDFI funds do 1% as much as banks, and the credit unions altogether do 7 or 8% as much as banks. So he's right. That's where the money is. But... If, in fact, the community banks continue to withdraw from their proper function, then maybe we all ought to figure out how to help the nonprofit CDFIs to grow like crazy so they can start doing the kind of innovative lending that is needed. Uh, they've, the United States Small Business Administration has just in the last year allowed them to 
uh, originate SBA guaranteed loans, which is a big deal because they're big loans for the loan funds and profitable. And the banks have left another, you know, have left a gap everywhere they are, including for SBA guarantees. So I think it's kind of like probably you ought to try both, but it could be that it's the nonprofit CDFI world that is going to be the the dog. What is it? The dog to bet on? <laughs> no, that's I mean that's where the passion is. Okay, the passion is with CDFI community development uh, loan funds. Okay, rather than banks. Okay, because I mean we're we're one way or the other on the boards of four of them around the country and, and know enough others. Uh, and the passion and the focus uh, to do development is much stronger in the CDFIs than it is in the banks. On the other hand, uh, the magic of FDIC insurance, okay, in which you go out to the public, okay, and you don't go and genuflect in front of a big bank and say, please lend me $2 million at whatever your ridiculous interest rate is, which is such a minuscule portion of your total assets. Uh, uh, and that's what Shore Bank, we, we grew it at $2.5 billion, not because there was $2.5 billion of deposits in South Shore, okay? It was because we were able to create over time a network, and the network kept getting larger, and when, uh, when the internet really took hold, and we were able to do internet deposit raising, uh, and we had to be accountable to our deposits, it was a way to bring money in from everywhere and focus them in on communities. And it, it we, as a, Mary's right, I mean, as a country, we just, nobody thinks about it, and nobody, people who really understand banking don't want to think about it, okay? They absolutely do not. That Fed regulation that I mentioned at the beginning about bank holding companies having unique combination, blah, 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 that, those, that law is still on the books. It's there, okay? It's, it is there. But you don't hear a voice in Congress. You don't hear a voice anywhere uh, speaking about it. Um, I really appreciated your um, presentation. It's probably one of the first times I've come to a APA event where we talked about community development. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how important do you believe the local CDC is to the initiatives of the banks? So, for instance, if we look at historically South Shore and a neighborhood group called the, the TNI, the Neighborhood Institute, um, that was connected at a certain point. And then how important is it for these organizations to function well? Because if you look at South Shore now, you have the Black United Fund of Illinois that does a lot of investment in the neighborhood. You have the South Shore Chamber of Commerce, which now manages two SSAs in the neighborhood. But those are really the two community-based kind of organizations that are really doing anything in a neighborhood. But they really don't have an extensive CDC that would be able to help Urban Partnership Bank, which is there now, to say, hey, these are our initiatives for this neighborhood. And this is what we need. And then I guess, and you guys talk about Austin and Bethel New Life and, and the work that Gail Sincata had done with CRA. I'd be interested to know what you believe is kind of this advocacy push of the CDC and how important that is for the local bank to actually grow. Did you know Doris or Bob Wardlaw or uh, Mike, Michael Bennett? You knew all those people. Good. All good folks. Uh, all part of Shore Bank. Um, the... Um, um, CDCs, uh, non-Shore Bank affiliated CDCs were relatively less important to Shore Bank than they can be or, uh, you know, um, perhaps ought to be, okay? Uh, in large measure, I mean, it really depends on the strength of the management, okay? We've got, Mary and I are on the board of the... Uh, um, Craft uh, Three, uh, which is a CDFI. Uh, I got to get all these letters straight. CDFI, which was a CDFI not-for-profit affiliate of Shore Bank that we created on the West Coast. Uh, I mean, two years ago, it was uh, it got that award from MacArthur and uh, um, uh, Wachovia Bank as uh, the outstanding small. They give an award to the uh, large and small. Uh, it was the outstanding small-sized uh, um, uh, institution. But the, the management there, there are two guys, really two guys and a woman now, uh, who run it. They're spectacular, okay? And they're, you know, there is no affiliation with Shore Bank because there is no Shore Bank. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but they have been, they've operated up and down uh, the coast uh, in Oregon and Washington. Uh, they're very active in Indian country. Uh, they are now, just now, expanding, ex- expanding into... 
uh, central. They've made it. A, they've, they've, uh, they have a presence now in central Oregon. Next, they're going to be in central Washington. Uh, very well managed, very effective at raising money, very, very effective at relating to uh, community. Okay. Um, um, a CDC like that, okay, or a CDF, CDFI like that can be really good. We're on the board of one that we created 20 years ago in Marquette, Michigan. It's a partnership with Northern Michigan University. Uh, same thing. It's, uh, it's not as effective as the one on the West Coast, uh, but it is very effective across the entire upper peninsula of Michigan and down into the lower parts of Wisconsin, not all the way down, but in the, in the northern parts of the, lower, of, the up, of the lower peninsula of Michigan and in the state of Wisconsin. So my answer is that it really depends on the quality of management. Okay, If you've got a good management, people who know how to raise capital, who know how to uh, use that capital, who know how to make loans, who are disciplined about it, who can relate to community, okay, who understand the values of community but aren't going to roll over and play dead because they say community, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but it is a business, and they're in it for long term. That can be very, very valuable. We tried to do more with the South Shore Commission, uh, but at the time that we tried to do it, there never was effective enough uh, um, uh, management. Our deceased colleague Milton Davis uh, initially got $160,000 as a gift from the Joyce Foundation and gave it to the commission so they could be shareholders in Shorebank Corporation. It was one of our early efforts, yeah, uh, one of our early efforts uh, to build a tight link uh, with an independent community organization. Um, you know, maybe if we tried harder or were smarter or 16 other things. So, um, Ron, I just want to add one thought to that. You know, these things that are like the Chicago Community Loan Fund that are now called CDFIs are different from CDCs. And the advantage that they have is because they are lending, they actually are earning a higher percentage of their operating costs in predictable annual revenue. And so they're less grant dependent or they're less dependent upon big real estate projects that they're working on coming through. And so I think that that's why this Craft uh, 3 on the West Coast has been so successful, is that they've been able to assemble a capital base and then deploy it so that they're independent and they can attract more talent, they can get more money. They just, it's just, I think it, I, I suspect, I mean, there's a role for both, but, and there's certainly a role for public advocacy, but I think that the CDFI business model in uh, some level is doing better than the CDC business model. For the sake of time, we'll just take one more question here. Thank you. Uh, I think I see two things that we have going for us today that we didn't have 40 years ago. Uh, one has been mentioned, which is just the history and the, the background and the experience of the shore bank to say it can be done. Number two, people have learned you don't have to roll over. You can go forward. I mean, frankly, we have a president that kind of also iterates that fact of there is a community organizing is good for something. And there are some tools that we have learned over the past 40 years that just need to be, not just, but pushed a little harder and mined a little deeper and spread a little broader, but a lot of those tools are the things we need, you know, to use from our quiver today. The other thing that, that frankly, wasn't mentioned and might be a given is that in the early 70s, people didn't really think that an old, in the neighborhoods especially, that an old building is going to do anything except go down. It was sort of... Shore Bank and a lot of the rehab, you know, I, I like to say that I probably had subscription number two to the Old House Journal. Um, but it was a mindset that has evolved that says we have these old buildings. Of course, America is a young country, but, you know, things in London, things in Paris are 400 years old, 500 years old. We learned that... If the plumbing gets bad, you put in some new pipes. You find out how much it's going to cost, and then you do it. Now, of course, part of the problem is that it costs just as much to do it as Woodlawn as it does in Lincoln Park. But 
you know, you have that equation and you have that, a change in mindset to build on that says we really can bring these things back. And uh, in terms of Woodlawn, it, it's frankly, yes, it's an education of public officials and community residents as well. As you look at some of the neighborhoods further out where there's been a lot of vacancy and demolition today as opposed to the, the vacancy and demolition, you know, in Bronzeville. And people say, oh, that house next to me is vacant. It needs to be torn down. Well, in some cases, it's a public, edu- it's an education piece to say, no, it shouldn't be. Now, sometimes you may have fire insurance, you know, you have issues. But basically, it's an, a, a public education issue that says, no, you don't want it torn down for many, many reasons. So, like I said, there's a couple of tools that we have. And, uh, and we've got younger people who care about the issue, too. Um, but no, that's. Um, the, uh, I'm glad you said that about old houses. Uh, my wife and I live in a uh, two-flat. It was a two-flat. With, uh, it's kind of still a two-flat. Uh, uh, that was built in 1891. And so every now and then when she worries about everything going down and it's going to all crush and go away, I just try to just look at what they've done in London and Rome and a few other places like that. You just keep fixing them up. Um, but uh, no. The, uh, and, America's a very right. throwaway No, at Shorebank, we were uh, very good at finance. We, were, we financed both um, uh, at the end or the last decade or so. It was about half and half. Uh, uh, black uh, uh, building owner operators, okay, and the other half were uh, heavily uh, Croatian uh, janitors, okay. Uh, and in both, well, the two groups did not work together. They both had the same mindset, okay. I mean, they could squeeze nickels like you wouldn't believe, okay, and would figure out ways how to do stuff because, I mean, there's a discipline of how much rent you can, uh, you can, uh, you can charge. Uh, but uh, those were talents and skills that people developed, and, and we used to uh, once a month get them together in our boardroom and talk about a particular building system. So it was by invitation, okay, it was, a, it was people in the business, and so one month they might be talking about heating systems, Another month they might be talking about roofing systems. Another month they might be talking about building insurance. Okay, it was it was peer learning. Okay, in which people were able to learn from each other uh, how to cut the corners, uh, how to save money, and how to get the stuff done. There's more, much more that could be said on that, but there was a whole lot of learning that went on. So, well, I think for the sake of time, we'll let that be the final word. Let's have a round of applause for our speakers. Thanks for coming on this gorgeous night. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Mary Houghton and Ron Grzynski for a thought-provoking and informative program on community development banking. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.